Good morning again. It is good to be uh, together. I know it's a hot summer day, and it's a good place to be gathered to worship uh, together our risen, our risen God. Uh, our scripture passage this morning comes uh, from, again, the book of Isaiah, and we'll be in Isaiah chapter 26 today, if you would turn there. Just a few comments as you, you turn there. I, Isaiah 23 picks up just after what we saw last week, which was a picture of this wonderful feast, a wonderful feast that is offered, a feast that is this celebration of all that God has done and accomplished. And the story moves a little further this morning to the day of the Lord and a song that is sung a song of, of joy, a song of some lament, a song of some sort of piecing together. How does it look to actually live in the world that God has, has given us? And one of the central themes that we'll see is this picture of peace, that we are promised peace, not just peace, but, but perfect peace. And I know we probably in a room this size have some skeptics of peace. We think peace, even just a, a peaceful state of mind, is really an illusion, never going to get that. Or maybe there are some uh, converted here to the idea that peace is something that is offered, but whether you're a skeptic or a convert or somewhere in between, I hope that together as we look at God's Word this morning, we will see that peace, real peace, is actually on offer for us as believers. So would you stand this morning for the reading of God's Word taken from Isaiah 26, 1 through 8. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. You keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. For he has humbled the inhabitants of the height, the lofty city. He lays it low, lays it low to the ground, casts it to the dust. The foot tramples it, the feet of the poor, the steps of the needy. The path of the righteous is level. You make level the way of the righteous. In the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, would you guide us as we turn to this passage? Lord, would you work on our skeptical hearts? Lord, would you grow in us a desire for you and for your peace? Would you give us confidence that what is said here in your word is true and worthy of our attention? True and worthy of actually building our lives on. Toward that end, Lord, would you bless the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together this morning, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> I think it's safe to say that all of us want peace. We'd like to have peace in our lives, sort of. We'd like things to be uh, somewhat smooth, to be somewhat maybe comfortable peace. Maybe, maybe as you hear the word peace, you sort of fill in many of the words that we put behind it, peace and quiet, peace and security, peace and stability, and you long for that. There's innate in humanity to long for peace. Uh, this week, I found one example of this. It's from a, a Civil War chaplain named Samuel D. Longheed, and he was a chaplain in the Union Army during the Vicksburg campaign, and he wrote many letters back home. And if you've ever read a letter that somebody wrote a long time ago, it sort of makes you sort of uh, ashamed of every, any email or letter you've ever written. And, and this, is, this is a case in point. Uh, he wrote these beautiful letters home, and I'm just going to read a few excerpts from them this morning. 
This one's from October 7th, 1862. Writing home to his wife, Jane, he says this, "'Tis hard to see the mighty prancing war horse trampling the dying and dead beneath their merciless feet. No dear wife near to speak a word of comfort, no living sister or mother to administer relief in that hour the most sad in the history of humanity." Oh, humanity, oh, the horrors of war. Truly, it may be considered the most cruel and awful scourge that can befall a nation. Heaven grant there may be an end soon. Six months later, he wrote to his wife, How I long for peace. How will I hail the day when I return to you, my family? My dear, I hope to see you. Now, I hope you've written letters like that to to one another, but I guess maybe some of us haven't. In fact, I was thinking of sort of a a secondary point here where I'd go on uh, social media and find somebody sort of posting a longing for peace. I found many of them, but I'm friends with a lot of you on Facebook and didn't want to read your mail to everybody this, this morning. And we long for peace, maybe not in the eloquent style of this Civil War chaplain, but, but we know what it's like to look at a situation and, and do two things, to say, something's not right here, and God, would you do something? Would you address this? Would you bring peace? And, and, and would you address our, our lack of peace? Many of us have hectic lives, lives where there is conflict, sickness, disagreement, worry, anxiety, all of these things that are sort of a a contrary thing to peace. You know what it's like to lay awake with pain and say, God, would you take this away? To lay awake, not just maybe in pain, but but running all the scenarios in your brain. We're really experts at this, aren't we, of of laying awake and running every situation that really is not a peaceful thing. And maybe some of us have brokered maybe an uneasy peace where we have sort of patched our lives together, where we just sort of ignore certain things. We have sort of a system of sort of dodging through a few conversations to maintain peace, but we know that our our peace could be shattered in an instant. With one conversation, one word, one diagnosis, whatever it might be, one stock market crisis, and our peace might somehow evaporate. In a sense, what we have maybe is not just an uneasy peace, but a false peace a false peace in our physical world, but, but maybe even a false peace with God. Maybe we've brokered some sort of deal with God, and we haven't actually dealt with Him in His fullness and in His holiness. We long for peace. And the good news for us is that as we long for peace, this passage says that is right and good. In fact, the very desire of our soul is connected to this desire for peace. And we're given a picture of, of how we together can actually have peace, perfect peace, not just a mere illusion of peace, but actually some real, some real peace. So how do we get this? How do we move forward together this morning and see peace? Well, let's turn to the first part of this passage in Isaiah, and we see this picture of a day, and we've seen that earlier in Isaiah, where there is this song that will be sung. And if you remember, the day that is often mentioned, it's, it's not necessarily talking about one sort of calendar day in time and history, but the day where God brings about His promises. And that can have multiple fulfillments. In part, the day will be when God's people come back from exile and out of Babylon and back to the promised land. That will be a part fulfillment, but there's more than that even. And so this song is not just for one day that we have to find on a calendar, but it's for us who live in the reality that God is on His throne. So this song is for us, and we get to sing it, and I think it's even important that it's a song, because songs shape us, they form us, they direct us to love certain things and not love other things. And that's what we see in this passage. We see two cities set up for us. One is the city of God, the city of salvation, 
and one is the city of destruction or the city of man. And many people in, in church history have sort of looked at this reality where there are two cities, and, and Augustine is, is one of these individuals, and have noted that, that what really distinguishes people from this city of salvation and this city of destruction is what they love and what they desire. And we'll see that play out in this, this text. The ones who love God, who desire God, who look for salvation in God are the ones who take up residence in the city of God and move away from the city of destruction that is formed by a love of self. And so that's where we begin with this reality, this picture of a city, verse 1. We have a strong city he sets up for salvation. And, and maybe we hear that and we say, I don't really like cities. I don't like going down to San Antonio. It's stressful. I'd rather just stay in Bernie. Um, but we need to hear that language of city as something that would have been of deep comfort. Where do you go in this time when you are in danger? You go to a city. Cities have walls, cities have places of bulwarks, as the text says, and walls, places that defend you. And so you want to go there to find protection. And as this song is given to us, it frames the salvation that God gives us as a city of security. That's what, we're, that's what we have on offer. That's the very premise underneath all of this talk of hope and peace is that there is a city that we go to that is of security. Now, where is this city? Well, you could say, well, it was Zion, and they'd go back, and that was a place that they rebuilt, and it was poor protection. It's part of it. We could also look forward to the heavenly city where we will go and be together and worshiping God, and that's the fulfillment of it. But even now, there's a spiritual sense that we can take up residence in this city of salvation, a place where we can say we are safe and secure in what God has done for us. How do we get into this city? Well, it's an open city. We're welcomed into this city. Verse 2 says this, Open the gates that the righteous nation that keeps faith may enter in. We are welcomed into a city of security and perfection, a city where there is peace. The gates are open. The righteous nation, who are those people? How do we become part of them? It's not talking simply about Israel. It's talking about, as we've seen earlier in Isaiah, even Isaiah 25, that the nations will come together and trust in God. And it's this group of people that says, God alone is our security. We will trust in him. Those are the people that, that enter in, and they enter in through faith. It's a picture of what we see in the gospel, that how do we enter into the security of salvation? Well, it's through faith. Those are the ones who are welcomed into this city. And so for you and I, as we hear this, we know that there is security out there. As we express faith in Christ, as there is fulfillment of this passage, that we have a place we can go that is a place of security, a place that we are welcomed in. These righteous people, if we just read a little further in the text later after uh, the passage we read this morning in verse 16 and 18, we also see that these are people that are not perfect. Righteous here does not mean moral perfection and keeping all of God's law. In fact, these people are those that God has brought discipline on, which implies that there was something that God had to, to deal with. They're not perfect people, but they are people who know that it is God's grace and His mercy that they turn to and say, I will trust in Him and Him alone. So we take up residence in this, this city, this city of hope, this city of security. And as we do that, what do we see? We see that there is this wonderful reality, verse 3, you keep him in perfect peace. Not something we all want. We all read that and say, that sounds wonderful. Perfect peace. 
What, is, what does that mean? Well, literally in the, in, the, in the original text, it has shalom, shalom, peace, peace. It puts this, this picture of God's perfection, of fullness, of human flourishing, and it says it not once but not twice. It does it to emphasize it. So it's right to translate it as we do into English, perfect peace, perfect peace. Peace that can't be touched. Peace that doesn't go away. Peace that is eternal. Peace that is actually for you. And that we are kept in that peace. We're not sort of said, there's some peace out there, but, but God in His mercy keeps us. We're going to talk in a moment about what we do, that we are, have our minds stayed on Him. But the emphasis in this text is not on us somehow maintaining or manufacturing this peace, but that this is a peace that God keeps us in. But He keeps us in it. By His mercy, by His grace, He says, my peace is, is for you all the fullness of what that means, all the beauty of shalom, of everything being put back to the way it is. In a sense, God says, I keep you in that. Peace with God, in a sense, is this picture of, of trust in God, and we see that reflected in this language of whose mind is stayed on you. Now, it's not really how we talk anymore, right? We don't really say, I've stayed my mind on something. Another way of translating that is something to the effect of, this is my frame of mind, this is my intent, this is even where my imagination is set, that God is the one who is worthy. My mind is stayed. My mind is even, you could say, leaned on God. I'm putting my very weight and trust on God because He trusts in you. That's the reality underneath all of this, that God is the one that we trust and the one who is trustworthy, is worthy of placing our very weight on Him. How does that actually play out? Well, we saw earlier, uh, if you were, uh, remember back when we read Philippians 4 earlier, for God examining our hearts and our service. And you'll note that as we read that, there was this picture of what we do. We, we rejoice in God, we rejoice in Him, we place our trust in Him, and then it gives this list of things of setting our mind on what? The things that are above. It gives us this list of things. It's similar to what we see here. And at the end of Paul giving us that list in Philippians, he says, practice these things. What does that mean? It means that we don't get this necessarily the first time. I think maybe we have a, a, maybe a malpractice sort of suit against the way we normally use this text. We say, well, I tried this. He says, keep perfect peace. Mind stayed on you. So I asked God for peace. He didn't give it to me. Isaiah 26 out. It doesn't work. What's described here is something of somebody coming again to God and saying, God, I don't understand everything. I don't understand why you do everything. I don't understand exactly the ins and outs of what this peace will look like, but I, I know that you are the one who gives me peace. In a sense, it's a, it's a mindset, a frame of mind that we grow up into as we place our trust on God. We say, God, you are worthy of this. I actually can entrust my weight to you, and so I'm going to pursue you. Maybe the question for us is, what are our minds actually stayed on? What are our minds fixed on? When, when, you're, when you're awake at 2 a.m. thinking about your problems, what is your mind actually fixed on? And I mean that sincerely because often what our minds are fixed on are the fact that the city of man, so to speak, is powerful, that there's this allure that we have to sort of make it over there instead of having our minds fixed on God. And as we turn to God and say, God, would you help me? Would you take that anxiety? Would you let me set my mind on you? God says that he keeps us in perfect peace. Now, does that mean all our problems go away? 
No, it doesn't. We'll talk more about that as we get into some of the later verses here, but it does give us the sense that God is actually with us in the midst of the things that cause us not to trust, the things that cause us to say, this might not be worth it in the end. Now, I'm sure we all followed the, the news of the submersible uh, that went down to the Titanic this week. Maybe you followed it in depth, but I'm sure you, you couldn't really, you know, look at the news this week and not at least hear about it. So this little vessel, the Titan, its ambition was to go down and see the Titanic. And tragically, it seems that everyone's life on that vessel was, was lost. But if you're like me, you had this moment early in the week where you saw the interior of this little vessel. And it's about the size of a, maybe a small car, a minivan, five people take their shoes off and kind of crawl in. And then you started hearing the details about this, this vessel, right? How is it controlled? It's like a $30 Logitech video game controller. And then you start hearing more things about sort of its carbon fiber. And I bring this all up because what I did, and I think maybe many of us did, we asked ourselves the question, would I do that? Would I get in that thing, push the little literal elevator button, and go down? Would you do it? I'm not, getting, I'm not asking for hands, but I'm seeing some sort of timid head shakes and say, no, I don't think I'd, I'd do that. Um, and I think that's probably where most of us would be, whether we had to pay a quarter million dollars or not to do it, we probably wouldn't have, have done it. But I bring that up for, for a reason, because I think some of us, in a similar way, look at this passage, we would never say this out loud, especially not in church, but we would say, I'm not sure if I can trust this. I'm not sure if I can actually trust God to keep me in perfect peace. I've looked at the sort of structure, I've looked at, you know, what controls it, and like this $30 video game controller, I say, I don't know. I'm not going to put my weight in that. And yet, that's exactly what God calls us to do. Not to look at this and say somehow this is foolish, that we're foolish to put our weight on this, but actually to look at this and, and see the words of Scripture and say, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock means he doesn't change. That means he doesn't go anywhere. That means he is secure, a foundation that we can actually build our lives on and say, you are the one who gives me perfect peace. Now, that might look something like this, praying to God and saying, right now, God, I don't understand what you're doing. I don't know the ins and outs of your plan. I don't know how you're going to give me peace and even, even perfect peace and how that peace is going to intersect with my, my world even now. But I know that you are the one that, that keeps me. I know you are the one who, who loves me and cares for me and is a steadfast God, and so I'm not going to retreat to the city of self, but I'm going to stay in your city of salvation and trust that you are going to do something. And God says, that is the frame of mind in which I keep you in perfect peace. I minister to you that you are, I, I bring my peace to you. I think maybe sometimes our, our resistance to that comes from the fact that we struggle to trust God. I think that, I mean, that's a fair thing. Every Christian at some point in their life fails and struggles to trust, trust God. And it can run along lines like this. Maybe we fail to trust God because we're anxious about what he, how he views us. Maybe we know the gospel's true. Maybe we know that we're sinners, that only by grace are we saved. We get all of that. But there's an anxiety in us that says, somehow I need to maintain this relationship. Somehow I need to maintain this. 
You might know that's not true, but that's functionally how we live. And then when that's how we operate, then actually trusting God is really difficult because we're not sure what, he, what his view of us is. A similar, similar view there is we might even know that God loves us, but we have so much shame over our sin that somehow we say, God could never actually care for me. He can never actually care about the details of it in my life. He abstractly loves me over here, but he doesn't actually engage with me in the nitty-gritty of my life on the path of life, as we'll see later. It's another obstacle to trusting God. Maybe one more that I think is common within sort of Reformed circles is that we never actually deal with God himself. We deal with a lot of principles about God. We know God is sovereign. We know God is loving. We know God is compassionate. We have a whole sort of barrage of theological truths that we can go to, but we haven't actually seen the God behind those truths. Yes, God is sovereign. Yes, God is compassionate, but we're not trusting an abstract principle of sovereignty. We are trusting a God who actually is, a God who is real, a God who is an everlasting rock, not in some abstract sense, but as the one who is the secure foundation of everything. And so away from all those ways I just listed of trusting in the Lord that sort of get in the way, we are called to a real tangible trust that is something robust, something that is secure, something that is a song that we need to sing again and again so that it gets not just in our head but into our heart, into our very desire that God is the one who sustains us. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, preaching on this, this text, he said, the heart reclines upon God's love, and the judgment leans on his wisdom. The desires recline, the hope reposes, the expectations rest, the soul throws all its weight and all its weariness upon the Lord, and then a perfect peace follows. It's a beautiful picture of resting our hope and our trust alone on God. Now, if we do this, what happens to the other city? If we trust in the city of salvation, what happens to the city of man? Well, verse 5 and 6 tell us. For he, that is God, has humbled the inhabitants of the height of the lofty city. Here's this city that looked secure, that looked strong. In this case, Babylon, but in our day, everything that sort of stands itself up and says, this is how we succeed, this is how we have peace, and it's brought down. It's cast low. It's, it's on the ground. It says dust itself, and then feet trample on it. Now, now note something here. We, the feet trampling on it are those who are poor and needy. The implication from the text is that it's, it's us, it's the inhabitants of the city of salvation that walk over this other city, but we didn't do anything. We're poor and needy. God brought the city down. God exposed it as something not worthy of our trust that our love should not be formed for this city of dust, but rather for the city of salvation. And we get to walk in victory through something that in some ways was very attractive to us. I think many of us hear this and we say, well, I'm going to obviously reject the city of, of loftiness. I don't want anything to do with that. But throughout Scripture, we see that often God's people have struggled with the allure of this lofty city, haven't we? Maybe just one example is God's people coming out of uh, exile in Exodus, right? Coming out of slavery, and they go into their direction towards the promised land. And what happens very soon, right? They long to go back to Egypt. And some of their language is, is almost humorous to us. What do they say? They say, there are no cucumbers here. There are no melons. There's no garlic. There's no fish. No leeks. Let's go back to Egypt. 
And you and I say, well, I know, I, I mean, I like a good watermelon, but cucumbers and leeks, really? Why, why would I go back for that? But that's, that's innate in, in our fallen, sinful reality to want to look back and say, that city looks secure. But a few chapters earlier in Isaiah 24, we see that this lofty city is actually a city that is a wasted city, a city that is full of false promises and false security. And so what we are called to do is to reject any other means of security, and this is what is so simple and yet so profoundly difficult for us to do, to actually reject all of the other offers of security except for God alone as our rock. I think that's often what gets in the way of us having a perfect peace, a peace that is perfect, because we look to God and we say, God, I, I, I get that you're going to give me peace, and I'm going to pray for it, but it's going to be on our terms. We say, God, really what I want is you to do these circumstantial things in my life, and then I will have peace. That's not what God offers in this text. What God offers us as the answer for peace is actually himself. He offers us himself. Where do we see that? Jumping into the last verse of this text that we read, we see in verse 8. In the path of your judgments, O Lord, we wait for you. Your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. That theme of desire carries on in in verse 9 where we see, my soul yearns for you in the night. My spirit within me earnestly seeks you. See, that's actually what gets us the peace. It's not a circumstantial change. It's our heart's desires being set on God and God meeting us in the midst of our struggle and Him giving us peace. That is the picture that we are offered. A God who meets us with compassion and peace on this path that He has set for us. Verse 7 gives us this path. The path of the righteous is level. You make level the way of the righteous. The language sort of reflects this idea that God is right and so our path also is right. Now, levelness levelness here does not necessarily mean easy. This isn't saying trust in God and all your struggles are gone. What does Psalm 23 remind us? Even though we walk through what? The valley of the shadow of death, we fear no evil. Why? Because he is with us. That's the, the language really reflected here. The path is level, not because somehow it's easy, But as we trust in the Lord with all our heart and lean not on our own understanding and acknowledge Him in all our ways, He directs our path. He moves us towards what is right and good. We see this even in the beginnings of verse 8 where it says, in the path of your judgments. That means the path that we have in front of us is the path that God has ordained for us. And judgments implies that sometimes the path is difficult. Even the path of the people in Isaiah's days is not an easy path. It's a path that will have difficulty, and yet God promises to be with us as we do what? Oh, Lord, we wait for you. We wait for you. Your name and remembrance are the desire of our soul. This posture of waiting with God's name and his remembrance being in front of us is is really a picture of waiting, knowing who God is. God's name is how he has revealed himself as a God who is faithful and covenantally sure towards his people. And one also who is one to be remembered, to remember God's, God's faithfulness. And in that, as our desire for Him grows, He meets us in that, that way. I saw around Bernie uh, my favorite bumper stickers. And don't, don't worry, it's not the Bernie Texas Gone Forever bumper stickers that are around there. Um, my favorite bumper stickers are race bumper stickers, right? You get the little white oval, and it's got a number in it. My favorite ones are the 0.5 kilometers. 
Have you seen those? It basically means you've, you've ran, walked, strolled, pushed, whatever, uh, a half a kilometer, which is very little if you convert it into miles, and then you get something, whether it's a drink or a food or whatever, and you get to put a sticker on your car and you say, I did it, I ran. Now, my favorite cars are the ones that have the .5 bumper stickers and then also the 140.6, which is an Iron Man, and sort of they're both on the same car. And I always wonder if it's a, you know, a different family member who's done one or if it's the same person. I bring that up because I think what this passage is doing is it's actually bringing together the 104.6 and the .5. What does the .5 mean? Well, it means you went a little way and then you got some refreshment. The 140.6 means you, you did it. You went through it all. God is telling us in this passage that life will actually be difficult. The path of his judgments will probably have some ups and downs, some difficulties in it. And yet, as we wait for him and set our desire on him, he gives us perfect peace. Peace that actually breaks into all of the difficult places in our life and says the gospel is enough. If we look through this lens of this te text, the New Testament, we see wonderful pictures that Christ himself is our peace. It's Ephesians 2, 14. Christ himself is our peace. One example of this in the New Testament is in all of Paul's letters, he uses this greeting, grace and peace. Grace and peace. What does he mean by that? Well, he's doing something intentionally. He's taking the Greek greeting, which is grace, and the Hebrew greeting, which is peace or shalom, and he's putting them together. In part saying, you who were two different people have actually been brought together in Christ. But even more than that, he's also bringing them together intentionally in a way that says grace leads to peace. The grace that God has given us to be part of this great heavenly city, even though we're not righteous, even though we are sinners, even though we have no business taking up residence in this city, even though that is true, God's grace moves us into this city, welcomes us into this city, and gives us a peace, a peace that we taste now as we trust Him, as we wait in the midst of the way, He gives us peace as our desire for Him grows. We can be securely attached to God, not, not wondering if He loves us, not wondering if He cares for us. He does. That is secure. I'm going to end by asking this, this question, and I mean it sincerely. Do you desire God? Do you desire God? I think all of us sang that earlier, and I think all of us to a degree actually do desire God, but most of our lack of peace comes from the fact that we don't desire God as much as we need to. But the good news of the gospel is that God's grace is enough for us. And actually, as we turn to God in grace, as we confess our sins and we pray, Lord, would you grow my desire for you? He will, in his mercy and his grace, do that. To grow your desire and love for him. And as that happens, all of the sort of circumstantial things, they're not unimportant, and God is actually going to work in those things, but ultimately we know that our peace is not in those things, but in God himself. And we place our trust there. One Puritan put it this way, we cast our anchor into the port of peace. That's what we get to do. Our anchor that holds us in a port of peace. And that doesn't mean waves don't come in and rock the ship, but we are secure. Our anchor is set because God is enough. Let's pray. Father, would you remind us that the gospel is enough? Would you remind us that Jesus has made the way for this to be possible.
that we are sinners who don't deserve to be in the wonderful city of salvation, and yet we're securely placed there. Lord, would you grow in us a profound desire for you, that we are satisfied when we are in your presence. Lord, would you show us that that is what we need, whether we're three years old in this room or much older, that you would grow in us a desire, a desire for you that is satisfied only by you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.